Hello, and welcome back to Champions of Security. I'm your host, Jacob Garrison, and today's guest is Rajendra Umadas, who is the head of information security at ActBlue. Raj is a leader, but he has a deep technical understanding of these problems. He's worked at companies like Squarespace, Etsy, WeWork, Spotify, and so he's going to share all that knowledge that he's gained from building and breaking things with the audience today. It's going to be a good episode. Stay tuned. Well, Raj, thank you so much for joining, man. I am stoked to have you on. I am excited to be on and help you on this journey with this <laughs> podcast. Perfect. So, you know, I, one thing I really like about you as a person is you're willing to say what's on your mind. Uh, so so I want to just start off open forum. Like what, can, can you tell us a story about sometime you or someone you know messed up in security and what were your lessons learned like broad spectrum mm. uh you know what what's what's something that you think is an easy mistake people make in the security world okay that's bringing some shivers because i'll tell you about my biggest mess up i'll say my biggest mess up was a, a little bit ago uh it was when i was transitioning out of a consulting role into uh an inside security role i took a little hiatus uh doing independent consulting with a couple of friends um, and I was a pen tester. I was at a small shop. I kind of knew what pen testing was. It seemed perfectly reasonable to just go off and do it yourself. And what I quickly realized was I was a very horrible boss to myself. I, within a couple of months, overutilized myself, um, set unreasonable expectations with myself, um, and let it uh, get too far where it really started to impact personal relationships and, and health. And like people say it all the time. It's it's almost like a euphemism to like kind of say these sort of things. But it is, I like to say it because if you are listening and you are finding and it resonates with you, this can land. You have to like realize in the security space and the security industry, it's very easy to have people take advantage of you because you have a very, very, very important skill set that is very hard to find. And a lot of us is like geeks who really want to hack, really want to pen test, will say yes all the time and uh, forget that, you know, there's things outside of the security work we do that gets impacted. And when you start to work 80-hour work weeks consistently with, like, very demanding um, deliverables and you don't keep that stuff in check, it's not sustainable, you'll burn yourself out, and the person potentially asking you to do that doesn't care about that. So the the mistake I did was letting that go too far and then the trigger of the mistake was just not delivering the quality of the work I needed to deliver. And I, I like let a customer down. And it wasn't until I let the customer down that I realized I made the mistake. So it wasn't even me realizing I was letting myself down that triggered that mistake. So you may want to consider before you let something else down outside of you, if you start realizing you're letting yourself down, like get ahead of it. That That's kind of deep and not security related but important no i mean it's, it's an important lesson for sure especially like like you mentioned it's an in-demand skill set a limited number of people who have experience in that skill set or even necessarily want to take on the the personal risk and liability associated the it's kind of a niche thing and so you know my if, I'm, if i had to guess your takeaway would it be learn to say no or is it something else it's a little bit of that, but more before that, it's, it's learned to self-introspect regularly. It is uh, learn when you may need to, you may, you, may, you may need to start priming yourself to say no. Um, because learn to say no 
like I think lots of other things we've talked about, there there's these um, pieces of advice in our industry and how we build programs and how we do pen tests, let's say, where the the only thing we talk about is the final thing, like do this thing. But there's a couple of things before that, that if was in place, doing that thing, it becomes easier. For example, learn to say no. It's actually way easier to say no if the week before you told yourself, you know what, if three more things happen, I'll probably have to push back. So you prepped yourself a little bit to say no. So you know what? Maybe the advice is don't learn to say no. You'll figure that out later. That's the easy part. The first thing you do is make a weekly plan to know what your total uh, utilization should look like and stick to it. That's maybe the advice to enable you to say no, to be like more specific on some other thing. Maybe the uh, advice we all hear is log all the things um, to address incidents. Well, that's good advice, I guess. It's maybe correct advice, but it's not helpful advice. Maybe what you should be advising is for your stacks that emit log events at um, a gig a day, log all those things. For your stacks that emit log events that are 10 gigs a day, do a sample logging. For your stacks that emit authentication events independent of volume, do all the logging. So like that's what I, I like to do is I like to be specific when I think it's important to be specific and not rely on the default best case or you know the easy correct thing because we all hear those things and if it's not helping the world become better there's probably something missing and it's it's that like so learn to say no sure prepare to say no maybe is better to say yeah yeah and especially when every every new thing that comes on your plate it always comes with a, a bit of priority right people, mm-hmm. people are like hey this is urgent we need it today um, and then you have to figure out, okay, well, I have seven other things that are also needed today. So, yep. so which of them matter? And one thing you mentioned, I thought was kind of interesting was, was logging and, and authentication events. Um, and, and so like, to your point, if you were to log everything, right, it would be a lot of data in a, in a giant volume. And a lot of it's probably useless too. Yeah. A lot of Lo- you know, loves it, right? Catherine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's all, it's like the joke about. When someone acquired Splunk, there's that joke yeah, yeah. around like can't tell yeah, it. Cisco Cisco's bill to Splunk was thirty billion dollars. We weren't sure if it was an acquisition or if it was the yearly re-up. <laughs> yeah, it's like people want you to log everything, but to your point, yeah. does it actually help? Um, and and yeah, for things like authentication events, it's probably pretty important, um, especially if something goes wrong, to be able to mm-hmm. go back through through all those events and figure out, hey, you know, when did this attacker get in? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting, and so if you if you couple that experience you had about, you know, being a good self-regulator um, and being when you're an independent consultant of yourself, is that something that you can look for when you're hiring? Like, are you able to to seek that out of candidates and and see if they have those self-regulation mechanisms? I'm going to say no. And I'm going to say it's also probably the case that most things that would be strong signals of success, you cannot find out in one half an hour interview or five one hour interviews in a day. It's just not going to be the case. And if you, in my opinion, and I suspect this is not held in like HR circles or other high functioning interviewing circles, fine. My, my opinion is the interviews that we are doing here and where I've historically done, it's not to gauge if a person is going to be, have all the skills to be successful. It's primarily to gauge if the person will not be successful in the organization because that's at least some high quality signals that you can detect and kind of codify 
they're also those are the ones that you can ensure are part of your entry process that um, shelters yourself from various biases. Like you need to be able to be somewhat specific about criteria that are makes go no go decisions. And it is my understanding that you cannot make this is a successful trait for sure. It's a successful trait. Maybe you can get good signs of possible success, but it's rather easy to detect unsuccessful traits in a 30 minute interview and stick to those unsuccessful traits as the go no goes. So you can like at least make sure the interview process filters out various biases. So that's like one thing. But then is that enough? If you subscribe to like this idea that like, um, what was the term? Uh, oper- uh, uh, capability is distributed across society evenly, but opportunity is not, which I like, or whatever that terminology is. Like, I believe in that. So what that means is that there's probably a lot of people that could be successful in infosec organizations if the organization um, doesn't try to only make a certain type of individual successful. So if you have an interview process that filters out the obvious unsuccessful potential traits, things around collaboration, things around um, empathy, things around first principle thinking, let's say, you can probably detect those things in the interview. Then that person comes on board your team and you spend some time getting to know the individual before you like say, this is your job, this is what your deliverables are, especially as you go more and more senior, you can uh, chart out successful journeys for them. So I guess to sum it up, many things that we would say, can you interview for this? Uh, good thing, maybe, but probably not. Can you interview this bad thing? Probably, so I'll do that. And then hire whoever's on your team, assume best intentions and creativity and people want to deliver and like figure out how to make it work. Interesting, interesting. So when you're in a, in a leadership position, are you, are you constantly thinking about what skills aren't on your team? Because that's something that, that you're aware of. You know, you say- Constantly. Okay, so, so what does that process look like from a leadership perspective? So what I'm thinking about is, as it relates to this topic, what skills are not on the team? What capabilities uh, are lacking in our program? I'm also thinking about what skills are on our team and what um, are individual people's uh, motivations, desires, sort of like where they want to take their career. Um, these are like always in the back of my mind when they become important to like act on is when you're doing road mapping and when you're doing um, sort of quarterly planning. Because when you consider all these things, then you can see these things. Plus at the time you're doing planning, you're probably going to get some business objectives, some strategic guidance, some like some outside like directionality that you need to go. You put all those things together and be like, cool, with the existing skill sets of the team and the desires of people, we can accomplish this goal via these sort of projects. And then we can say, cool, that all makes sense. With this one specific strategic goal, I as Raj and my various like stakeholders and partners in the org to help me planning did not find a way to accomplish this goal with this exact skill sets. In fact, there's this type of skill set that is particularly missing we were thinking about and we know it's missing because it was a deficiency in a previous project, something like that. And if we had the skill set, we can like support this initiative. So like that's when that makes it into another part that's probably always happening is like your um, open rec conversations and your job description tweaking and all that sort of stuff. So like the idea here is for me, I generally am like having a couple of parallel thoughts for the team constantly as it relates to this sort of stuff. To summarize that again, it is what 
do people like to do on the team? What do they want to do for their personal advancement? What is it that the, the team capabilities already have? What is it that we need? And those things are almost always in the back of my mind because like there's tons of things I do as a manager where those inform those processes, one-on-ones, doing job descriptions, quarterly planning, proposal review. So as long as you're always thinking about those stuff and they feed into all those processes, it manifests something good, I think. Um, it is interesting because I never thought about it like that, but I think that's that's what my primary job is actually, is to have a couple of those loops always on in the back of my mind and then applying the thoughts that come from those things for tasks that are thrusted upon me as a leader, which are some of those things I just said. Yeah, so you're keeping a pulse on your organization and your team and where everybody's trying to go, and then you have to sort of cr like creatively weave together everybody's independent wants and needs. That's, I'll yeah. say something real quick too. Of course, when I yeah. first started to do something like that, it was at um, maybe two or three employers ago, and I presented this idea to my CISO at the time, and he, he warned me. He was like, don't try to be too creative. Like, remember, you're still here to, like, accomplish uh, some task. And I was like, no, 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 I got this. Like, I was pretty much so cocky that I believed I could make the most complicated tiled skill set matrix and accomplish the task no matter what. That was not the case. Like, it just wasn't. <laughs> and what that ultimately led was me failing my team, where we were not getting into a good alignment. We weren't aligning the people on the team with me and the people above because I said, okay, above and me will align and me and down will align, but it wouldn't go all the way up. And that caused some friction. It also made it very difficult that people uh, had some attrition. Like it was a very weird, let's say, circle or shape to fill. It's not going to happen. So that for sure, I went really extreme on one end by not trying to influence down. I tried to let the influence only go up. And that was a failure. I now approach it a bit differently where part of the job of these things always being in the back of my mind when I do these um, these events as a manager, for example, one-on-ones, one-on-ones allows me to influence down some of these things here, but also influence down um, through 60 feedback here and influence up. So it's, it's me having to um, consider these things to influence both directions to kind of mush it together as opposed to only let the team define the implementation. Yeah. Yes, it's, you have to get, you know, you have to get the business objectives accomplished, right? That's your, that's your goal, but then you want to do it utilizing your, your employees and the way they want to handle it. And so, and you have to make sure you keep instilling faith in your leadership chain, which allows you to get the autonomy to deliver as well as the budget to deliver. Like you cannot underestimate or undervalue that partnership. Interesting. So, so when you think about you know, you're mentioning the, the ability to influence down and, and influence up and one-on-ones. And How do you get people to be honest with you about what they want? Now, I feel like that- You be honest with them. Like, one, you be honest with them. Harder said than, easier said than done. But also, for me, you have to use your unique skill sets. One thing that I consider a unique skill set of mine is I'm still very deeply technical, like very deeply technical. Uh, a person should hopefully never be able to bullshit me on something that is what they're working on, independent of level, independent of like depth or whatever. Like we're writing some fuzzer because I work at an embedded systems company and there's some third party library and we wanted to migrate from like C++ to Rust and we have to now like tweak an AFL config. Yeah, talk to me about that stuff and don't bullshit me on stuff. All the way to like if uh, I have a 
TPM on the team and we want to migrate from like a Kanban to an agile process. So the retros will be tweaked this way. It's like, cool, tell me about it. What's the level of effort? So being able to speak the language of everyone on my team in a way that makes them believe that I understand their work has helped me a lot. Um, and I think that is the thing I lean on when I when I join new teams or when I hire new people. The first couple of one-on-ones is establishing that as my personal goal to be able to always talk to you um, in your language and then build the trust that you can tell me what you want as in the weedsy as possible for your personal career, your proposal, and I can contribute. Interesting. So, so I mean, it circles back to what you said earlier about, about screening for empathy when you're, mm. when you're interviewing people, the ability to say, Hey, we have all these different individuals on our team and how would you interact with each individual maybe? And, and like, Hey, so you talked about like TPMs, you know, it's like, Hey, what's their goal? How are they judged in the business? And how do you need to enable them to do their job? And then same time you reciprocate. Yeah, that's, that's a fascinating thing to be like, can you speak to everyone in the organization in their terms? And and to your point, I think being a technical leader is really powerful because yeah, you, A, you don't get blindsided because you know what people are saying. Um, and B, people are more likely to be transparent with you because like, oh, Raj is going to get it. You know, he mm -hmm. hears me and he knows all of these complicated issues. And if yeah. you don't get it, something that's good is say you don't get it and have someone teach you and be willing to learn and also being vulnerable to say you don't get it. Like that helps too. Interesting. So do you, in your experience, do you feel like a lot of people in leadership positions in the security space come from technical backgrounds or do they come from, from other parts of the business? You know, like what, what's that typical, uh, you know, evolution or career progression for a lot of people. Ooh, you're going to get me in trouble. I'm sure. I'm sure this is the <laughs> one that begins the now unemployable. All right. What am I going to say? I'm going to say this. I have been lucky in my career to have worked with a wide range of folks, um, both in like backgrounds, skill sets, journeys, ages, industries. It's been awesome. But like, that's probably. Another thing that is you, I feel is a unique um, advantage I have. I've worked in many places with many different people across many domains, and it has let me see what are some of the commonalities and what are some of the it doesn't need to be that way sort of thing. So to that point, I've worked with CISOs and like various stakeholders at that level who have been like the MBA types and the GC types and the legal types. I've worked with some that have been purely technical and started like video card engineering and then work their way up into like running security at some pretty bomb like game companies um so like it could be both empathy doesn't need to start from one of those like um avenues i think ultimately the the thing that is the metric of success here which again is hard to to potentially detect at at a sufficient level of an interview but it's easy to detect if it doesn't exist is Empathy, desire to learn, first principles, and listening. Yeah. And like listening is a weird one, which is like a mix of the both empathy and desire to learn. If you have empathy and desire to learn, I think you listen well. But those are the things that I think uh, have led to me having a very fruitful relationship with like my leadership. So you, you mentioned listening. And, and it, when you're interviewing people, how often do people try to talk over you and show you what they know? Is that a is that a problem you come across, or just listening means something else entirely? And I, you know, I'm missing the point here. In the most recent set of interviews, I haven't had it happen. I'm interviewing right now, and I can't say that the like 
talking over thing is something um, has ha- that has happened recently. But in the past, it would be a signal you would look out for if they're, they don't try to understand the problem at hand or they try to contribute too quickly uh, without um, finding areas of ambiguity in the question, which are purposely put there sometimes because you're supposed to, as let's say a staff security engineer doing arc reviews, identify areas of ambiguity and highlight them so that you can provide like actual good quality advice. So like you would look out for stuff like that and um, you, I mean, you would find it. I haven't seen it recently. I think my phone screen's relatively good to screen that stuff out. So maybe Perfect. that. Go to Nikki Falls. So if, if you take that idea of ambiguity and let's let's get more into the actual implementation of a software program mm-hmm. uh, where where do you feel like the solution to a to building a comprehensive platform security program maybe where is the solution ambiguous today like where where are companies not sure how to handle it um, like what are what are the areas that still need to be solved so I think the solution is ambiguous because the metrics of success and who those metrics of success are in service of is probably ambiguous still in our industry. Like if you have an organization whose leadership is particularly uh, um, resi- um, concerned about litigation, then like the types of stuff you would build in your software security program would uh, have to serve capabilities to make litigation hard, let's say. And if that is not explicitly agreed upon but it's implicitly there there's going to be this constant tension until you find people who implicitly agree upon that stuff and then things go well so like i would say in this in very specific cases ambiguity comes from not having an alignment between those who pay your check and those who implement your software security program let's say there is alignment like let's say we have a place where you're working at a place where the people who funnel the money your way and you see eye to eye on like some measurements of successful software security program. And let's like hypothetically say those are things like um, uh, lower the likelihood that a vulnerability leads to like data loss and uh, improve the speed at which an engineer can push to production historically because um, some security processes were rather gating. Let's say there's just those those sort of things. Mm. Then the next ambiguity hurdle, I think, when you're at that level is solutions iterate so fast, the vendor space um, iterates so fast, open source space iterates so fast that you don't know if you should try the new hotness or double down on some of the old coolness. And like you kind of get stuck in, if your program's rather new, like which way to go with that. And then you choose one. Let's say you choose the new stuff or the old stuff. You uh, don't consider like how much needs to be implemented in one of those pathways before you start solving for another problem. So like you start to like bite off. Now, now I think I'm mushing together two things. So let me step back a little bit. <laughs> say you know what you want to accomplish. You don't know. Now you have to decide how to accomplish it. Some areas of ambiguity, I think, related to that problem is you don't know if you should try tried and tested and 
accepted methodologies of implementation and go do it or try new stuff and work with vendors. So now let's say you do the, let's do tried and tested. What ends up happening is you don't try to tweak the safe, the, the known good patterns to your organization. So now you're building something that's not necessarily the perfect fit, but you're kind of going down this pathway because you're feeling very safe and the metrics of success aren't moving as fast as you thought, or some of the resistance of getting implementation is like a little weird, but, and you don't know why. And in a lot, it's because you're trying to solve your problem with someone else's solution without trying to be like creative. And like that leads to like some problems there. Does that speak to like ambiguity to how we solve problems? I don't know, but it definitely, it's a pattern I've seen happen a couple of times. And then the flip side is, cool, you're going to go with the entirely new thing. You're going to be a design partner with a vendor. So the world's the oyster. You can just like do whatever you want. Then what I've seen happen is you forget the metric of success you're trying to drive down. And then you're trying to like build some cool stuff because you're all about risk reduction. You're all about bone discovery or something like that. Yeah. And then that leads to like some problems. So I guess what both of those things boil down to is uh, if you don't, know what the metrics of success are, you're screwed. If you do know what the metrics of success are, you're have you're at least on a good journey, you should reference them and use them. And if you cannot um, let your metrics influence your decisions or measure decisions in like a smaller period of time to pivot, you probably need another metric so that you can like help yourself out. And that's uh, it's probably a thing that I should be more conscious that I'm doing. Yeah, keep keeping a pulse on what's really important to you and the organization you know, and not, I think that's, that's one issue that the people that go into engineering have to deal with is everyone that likes to solve problems, like that's what they like to do, right? They like to solve problems and they love fancy toys <laughs> and to take a step back and go, Hey, does this fancy toy that I like, does it actually accomplish the thing I set out to do? Or am I just getting excited because I like to solve problems? <laughs> and, and so we go back to your specific example about, let's say, you know, you said, and engineering releases were, were previously gated yeah. and we're trying to reduce the, um, reduce the likelihood that a vulnerability leads to data loss. So like mm -hmm. the, both of those things, um, what, what, when have you seen that be successful in your past life? You know, like I, I'm guessing you've tried to accomplish those very specific tasks in the past. Yep. Can yep. you tell us a story and maybe keep it anonymous as to when mm -hmm. exactly it happened, but yep. tell us about how you approach that. So, um, one thing I'll say is the, the potential secret success path there is there's this third parameter that you didn't bring up and I didn't bring up, but I'll bring up now is the risk tolerance. So if you are allowed to somehow move your risk tolerance to be slightly more risk tolerant, then you have some capabilities or some some budget to apply on the other side to be more forgiving on controls. And that's like the general way I start to think about solving problems like that. It is, what do I need to do to accept more risk via these couple of controls by doubling down or hardening another possible control? So, uh, this is not exactly how I solve the problem, but I'll say it like this, this is, this is potentially relevant. Let's say you have um, this gate problem. Maybe you realize in this gate problem that 80% of your PRs are to APIs that are unauthenticated 
and 20% of your PRs are to APIs. No, the other way around. It's probably actually the other way around. The bulk of your PRs are in the post-auth stack and uh, the far uh, a smaller amount is in the pre-auth stack. So what you can potentially think about there is, you know what? Post-auth, there's at least, especially for B2B, let's say, there's other mitigating controls there. You have customers that presumably have real identities that have some contractual relationships. So like if you, uh, as a, if you have a malicious customer poking for a bug post-auth, you have legal repercussions, you have insurance potentials, you have like um, audit trails that make things investigation somewhat easier. So what maybe that means is you are allowing yourself to accept more risk on the possibility of a deploy to production that leads to a API that provides, like can lead to some data loss, right? So if that's the case, maybe what you say is there doesn't need to be a secure, a software security code review for every single PR on the po on the post dot side, but for every pre auth one, a hundred percent because that's the one that's on the instance getting scanned. So you're going to do that. So you change your your developer process. Say you know what, since it's in this part of the API uh, as defined by this URL path, the 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 tooling, the PR tooling says this is optional PR review via security team member. If it's in this part of the API stack based based on this URL mandatory PR review by the security team member. And 80% is on this side, 20% is on this side. So all of a sudden you gain like however many hundreds of hours of developer productivity. And then because you're willing to accept some period of time of a potential bug existing in the Pothos stack, but that's still, you have to resolve that. So you can solve it with other things. Maybe you do regular pen tests um, at, at asynchronously to the developer workflow, enumerating APIs that change over the past period of time. Maybe you just keep iterating on your post-auth dynamic scanning tech uh, to look for like IDOR bugs and all that sort of stuff, which both things are things we've done in the past to like not have to have gated stuff on the front end. So like that's the thing. You can be creative with the solutions if you acknowledge that you have this risk tolerance slider, not just for the whole org, but for each control and you can be creative with that. Interesting. Yeah. And so when you think about, like you said, if it's a post-auth, a B2B, you have that level of trust that the customers that you're bringing in probably aren't trying to break your system. So you so you take that into account and you go, hey, you know, based on the people who have access to this, it's a limited, you know, a limited group of companies. We know who they are, and maybe we're logging all of those endpoints, and so we'll be able to see if they're attacking these post auth APIs maliciously. Um, and and yeah, that's that's it. I hadn't thought about that exact example before. It's a really cool idea. And then everything pre auth, yeah, you're like, hey. I don't want a random person on the internet to be able to break into this. So we're going to take it very seriously. And, and I'm just curious when you think about the time that it takes your teams historically to do those manual reviews, say an engineer changes a pre-auth API or introduces a brand new flow, maybe mm -hmm. how much, how much time does it take? Do you think for each pull request? Or it takes that... a lot. And then you figure out how to make it go lower and lower and lower through augmentation and not automation. That's a very specific thing too. So I'm a, I'm a fanboy of like a tool called SEMgrep. It has been a thing that has really helped my team a lot here and some other places where uh, it just makes it very easy to write custom static analysis rules that like can be relatively high signal ratios. You put it, put it into CICD or it could just be somewhat noisy, but like you can just run it on the beginning day of an assessment that you're going to do. And then there's this other tool called Nuclei both open source stuff, but it lets you, again, define scannery type behaviors. And like, as you become more and more familiar with your stack internally, 
you become more and more familiar with the type of bugs that like could crop up. After a pen test or maybe during a pen test, you turn some of your manual processes into automatic scans that you use on the next test. So um, I haven't done one here recently, but at some other places I've been, that would be a specific deliverable for the team who's doing a pen test. Do the pen test and also create a, t like this is a very specific thing I remember we we added, we had in the, the success criteria for the team. Go pen test this API, all post auth stuff. Also at the end of the pen test, make sure you create a tool that will let you dynamically enumerate all post auth APIs that had a PR against them within some period of time. So that was the expectation to do the pen test and build the tool. So like it takes a long time at the beginning, but if you decide that you want this to be an ongoing part of your program, then you decide to also improve it as time goes on. So you have to yeah. not be afraid to write code, build automation. You have to do that. Yeah, and, and in your experience, do you think that that's becoming a larger trend in security? Has that always been the case in, in terms of security teams that are building their own automation and building their own tools? Is that is that something that you think has changed over time? Um, I think it's always been there. So even going, like I said, I started as a pen tester. Um, I fell into security, by the way. Like I was not planning on being a security person until I graduated university. I had no job and I went to the bar. I was like, oh, cool. You can hack stuff with the knowledge I know. Fuck yeah, put me on that shit. <laughs> so then like I went there and I started pen testing. And I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. But I do remember I was a very small boutique firm in Trepidus Group and uh, everyone there, badass pen testers, but also built cool stuff like, um, we, we built internally stuff that did war dialing because that's how far back in the day we were doing. We built internally things that um, turned into fish me slash cofence. That was like a project that I dated from a pen test. We built this thing called Mallory proxy. That was like a thing that I talked about Black Hot, which was like a, a very simple invisible man in the middle proxy. Um, we were building fuzzers for things that we needed to. We built software to pen test phones when we needed to. Like the 12-ish people at the time when I was there, we all pen tested and hacked on stuff, but we built things. So maybe I got spoiled, assuming that was like the norm because that was my first exposure to this industry. Mm -hmm. um, but then the other potential thing that spoiled me was the first time I got inside security was at Etsy, which was very much known to build things. Like we built the auth stack when we were at Etsy. I deployed stuff throughout the API to look for like auth Z bugs. It was fun. Like, I deployed something that brought down Etsy because I was using up too much cryptographic material for a couple of hours. That was fun. But like that was my first exposure as inside security. So I would say, at least for me, I always assumed security folks, offensive and defensive, built no matter what. Um, I would say people that uh, I've hired, I've worked with throughout the my journey, we tend to build. We tend to hire people who can build. But I'm I'm confident that's not necessarily the case in many places. Um, I don't know where it's trending, but I know for as long as I'm working, I will prioritize the ability to build and deploy software. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, even if you're purchasing a solution, right, there's, there's still a lot of work that has to be done to integrate that solution with your existing mm -hmm. stack. And, and typically people want to build, you know, their own automation integration with those tools. So whether it's yep. from scratch in house or purchased and then brought in, like there's, there's a good amount of work that goes into making it an efficient solution. Yeah, you can't be afraid to write a for loop, iterate against an array, or access an API. Like, we should all be able to do that. Yeah. 
Yeah, and you uh, you got to celebrate the first time that you bring down Etsy for some. Well, <laughs> <some> other... <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was funny. That was a good one. Yeah, it's like the it's a rite of passage, right? You make some big mistake, and everybody is kind of annoyed and also laughs at you. And <laughs> it was uh, one thing I'll say, like as a quick shout out to Etsy, like the culture of failure was healthy there. Like it was, it was people said blameless, but they were also blameless, so it felt okay. Awesome, and. and... One thing you talked about was risk tolerance. Um, and so when you think about where in a development cycle or in, you know, in a pipeline, maybe you're willing to accept risk for, for you personally and, or maybe the industry as a whole, where do you feel like people are more willing to accept risk um, and where, where is it more dangerous? So is it okay to have risk in dev in like, do you have to catch it all by the time it gets through QA? Is it mm -hmm. okay to find it in prod? Like, where are you comfortable accepting risk in an application? So that's like an interesting question. I would respectfully say, I don't think that question makes sense. Like, why don't I think it makes sense? It's something that I was thinking about very recently. A lot of security people will use the term SDLC for like software development lifecycle or secure development lifecycle, something like that. In the last like five years, I haven't heard one developer ever use the term SDLC. So like my... I'm feeling like this idea of a development life cycle is actually not the accurate model anymore for those who we serve. So like to consider like where we want to um, tweak risk measurements in an SDLC may not be good because it's actually not the thing that exists anymore. Maybe the life cycles don't exist anymore. Maybe like uh, a start and an end doesn't exist anymore. So like this is something that uh, I've been like thinking about recently. But what I would say is being able to, as a security professional and a leader, assess how your organization ideates software, designs software, tests software, deploys software, maintains software. You should figure that out. And then you should understand what are the hooks in that for you to detect potential vulnerabilities, detect potential threat actors, to provide safe by default like tools um, when a person is deploying or testing, like you need to be creative to like figure that out. And then to go directly to your point, the calculus is where is it the most efficient and most possible for you as a security professional to get your job done? So it's probably the case that when you're really, really new in an organization, you don't decide where the risk is acceptable. You are told where it is risky and you cannot address it. So you have to solve it somewhere else. I think that's how I would approach that um, that problem. I liked your point about the people that we serve and the way that they deploy. Um, because, because to your point, if you're in software security, right, like your your job is to protect the software that's running. Um, and, and so understanding the teams that are involved and and how they are going about it, what their process is, is really important because, you know, like you've spent a lot of time at, at uh, startup like more scrappy organizations it's like a huge a huge part of the value proposition of those companies is like we move really fast and we get mm -hmm. things done and we bring this value um and, and so yeah being able to exist within that mindset and that framework um is definitely important and so if you if you think about you know you brought up the reduce the potential that vulnerabilities lead to data leaks how what does that what does that mean in terms of is it hey, we, we're going to understand where these vulnerabilities interact inside the architecture? 
is it we're going to understand if this this open source library that's imported if we're using the function that's vulnerable you know like are there specific gates or or maybe not gates but things that you look at to mm -hmm. to help draw that correlation of does vulnerability a lead to the the data exposure at point b Ooh, interesting so uh, i wouldn't even try to draw that conclusion um if if the goal is reduce the possibility that the vulnerability leads to a data leak if that's the goal you don't necessarily have to know if a, the vulnerability will lead to a data leak before you address the vulnerability because maybe you solve the problem vulnerability agnostic maybe the way you solve the problem is you design an architecture where if your edge can um have full remote code execution, uh, your data layer authenticates the service sufficiently such that the data that goes out will only ever be the data that needs to go out for that service and that authenticated user, right? Like that's a possible, it's a very kind of like pedagogical example, but like that is a possibility, right? So the idea is that when you're trying to reduce those, those possibilities, part of it is potentially reducing vulnerabilities but part of it is limiting blast radius of vulnerabilities, and maybe part of it is uh, eliminating classes of vulnerabilities. So it's not necessarily reducing the cap the possibility that like the vulnerability gets out there, but like you can't even potentially make it out there. So like that's how I would think about that sort of stuff. So let's just I mean, let's be really specific with some of this stuff. If I believe I'm at an organization where the next best thing to do is data loss prevention via APIs that are being iterated by our developers. Let's say that's something like that. Why would I why would that exist? Maybe that exists because I work at a data broker, let's say. And like that that would be an example. Like you work at a data broker, you have an API for customers, you want to make sure that your data only goes out that and to who it needs to go, how it needs to go out. Then you will probably have some strong needs to understand your ORM ORM and like you probably will have some very strong sort of um, detections on if your APIs are accessing the ORM correctly. So spend a couple of weeks to maybe a month or two deploying your SaaS tools and custom rules to make sure at least any new hooks into the ORM are done as expected. Raise alarms as, as soon as they're not and do code reviews. Cool. Do some of that. Uh, maybe you spend some time and you look at your Auth Z layer and you notice that um, the authenticated user uh, is determinable post authorization but the API that accesses the data doesn't consume that authenticated user. So maybe you work with the team that would implement that and be like, hey, long, long, long problem. Let's do this. Let's span over six months. But if we get this one parameter in this thing and we do the work to kind of pass it across API, we severely limit the possibility of blah, 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 blah. By the way, this aligns up with this business objective that we got agreed upon through our CISO already. So it doesn't have to happen now. But I think if we do it over six months, it looks like this, we can we can make that happen. And then you start the process of figuring out what it means to get something on a roadmap for the quarter or the next quarter. Um, sometimes that means chunking up the problem too into something smaller. And the the interesting thing here is maybe the security team is not the best person to chunk the problem up because maybe it chunks up into more engineering tasks, not security tasks. But this engineering team is not motivated to chunk the problem up. So guess what? You're on the hook to chunk it up. So go read some books and go chunk it up, right? So there's something yeah. like that. And then finally, all right, so you have certain APIs and they have certain types of uh, ways that they can be buggy. So you write scanners to like buzz those APIs and look for weird stuff. And then the last thing is, worst case scenario, the vulnerability does happen. 
but you have the edge WAF detect like anomalous status codes and anomalous response sizes. And then you immediately alert if you see a weird response size that you don't expect. And then you lock down an IP. So maybe you lost one piece of data, but you limited the exposure. So that's like how I would quickly potentially like navigate through that. Interestingly, as a architect or an engineer, that's what I would be doing. As a manager, I would not do that. I would really try hard to find someone who wants to pick up a problem like this and through one-on-ones and through proposal reviews, get them to something like that. Or if I'm reading a proposal, I'm like, oh, I didn't think about that. Oh, that makes sense. Be willing to listen and accept that. And then like understand what maybe I need to then go upwards. But oh, you know how we talked about solving the problem this way? No, no, no. I was talking to my engineer. We're going to solve it this way. And like, that's when, you know, those four loops are always happening to support the people in the team in the org. Interesting. And, and thank you for providing that example. I think that's, that's really powerful. And so you talked about having your, your WAF detect anomalous uh, response sizes. And, and so in this sort of example, is that is that your concern that because you don't have that Auth Z stack going through all the APIs, uh, you start to leak data of all of your customers all at once? Like, is that, is that sort of the... I mean, that's like the, that's like the, the test concern, right? That's like the old school SQLi protection concerns, yeah. which is why I say that. Um, it's not, it's not bad to have a detection like that in place. I, you'll probably pick up like lazy scanners, um, but some APIs have such variance on data sizes now that like it may be difficult to actually get a, a strong signal there. Like if you're using GraphQL, you have a single endpoint. And if you don't introspect the GraphQL request a lot, like a simple WAP won't necessarily know the difference between API A and API B. It looks, it all looks like one API, right? And the GraphQL responses range from like bytes to kilobytes. So yeah, we can do. Yeah. It's like, uh, it, it responded and it's very hard to detect anomalous behavior if the behavior is sort of not consistent, right? Like if you, exactly. if you, if you don't have a, a known uh, response every time, then yeah, but it was very challenging. And that's, especially if you're trying to do it at the, at the edge location without adding a bunch of latency, we have to make the yep. decision very quickly before we allow the data to, to transfer through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's fascinating. Well, Raj, we're starting to run low on time. So first of all, thank you for, for all these insights. And you know, before we get out of here, can I give you the opportunity to, to make a call to action or to propose something uh, to our audience? Ooh, yeah, why not? My proposal, my action, my, my request is like the higher we get up in the chain of an organization as security leaders, the easier it is for us to not be creative and not allow for opportunities and not allow for people to solve problems differently. It's easier because it's safer. It allows us to sleep easier at night. I think my request to people listening, if they're in that position, is allow themselves to take a little bit more risk for themselves and for their team to get more people in the industry, to get more solutions done in more creative ways, and to uh, like exercise the creative brain like in your career like i would say that that's the thing that's something that's been on the top of my mind for the a little while amazing well raj thank you for the words of wisdom and, and thank you so much for joining today it was a blast talking to you this was awesome i'm looking forward to much more of these podcasts this was fun perfect all right i will uh i'll see you later raj peace out thanks for tuning in to this episode of champions of security Be sure to come back next week. We're going to have another exciting guest on this very streaming platform. See you there.